Have you ever been so taken with a mystery that all your doubts fell away? And just for a second, you didn't care how big or scary or difficult it might be. You just knew you had to get to the bottom of it? It happened to me the first time I went to a planetarium. You've been to a planetarium, right? You step into a circular room where the lights are low and the dome overhead transports you to places so far away you could never reach them, even if your life was a few billion years longer. It's a lot to take in, but if you pay attention, you may leave with more questions than you had when you came in. I know I did. I'm eight or nine years old. It's a school field trip, I think. Or maybe we have the day off and my mom takes us. I like the theater immediately. I like how the chairs make you face the ceiling. And when the lights go down, I know it's impossible. But I see the ceiling dissolve. And behind it, there are more stars than I have ever seen in one place. Stars and stars and stars. Cut to a space eye view of Earth. I've seen this on TV before, the oceans, the continents, the clouds, old news. But then, the camera zooms out, slowly at first. There's the moon, there's Mars, and Saturn, and the other ones. There's the sun. I guess I never thought about how far away the sun is. The camera zooms out faster, and now the sun looks very small, like a regular star, and more stars are flying in from the edges of the sky, and the space between them is shrinking, and it is too much, too fast. The stars I couldn't count before have shrunk down into a swirling little disk, adrift in nothing, and I feel myself dissolving, just like the ceiling did. But before I can let out the primal scream I feel rising in my throat, a question, a mystery, distracts me. How could we possibly know what things look like that far away? And who's we? Who is running the zoom lens on that camera in the planetarium show? Who's back there? Who framed the shot? Because a camera, even an imaginary one, way out in space, means that somebody else has been exactly where you are staring out at the same puzzle, wondering where to begin. The Aquarius Project, Chapter 1. There's not a 0% chance. If the universe is your puzzle of choice, you might expect the person who got there first to be an astronomer or a physicist, somebody with years of specialized training. And that's usually the case. But not everyone who solves a little piece of the cosmic puzzle is some kind of genius who knows more about the puzzle than everyone else. Sometimes it's a person, or better yet, a group of people, who bring something special and different to the party. Who find out a meteor crashed into their lake and devise a plan to rescue it. Late one night, technically early one morning, a Monday, in February of 2017, a car-sized meteor lit up the sky over the Midwestern United States, burned up, broke apart, and sank to the bottom of Lake Michigan, about 10 miles off the coast of Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Now, the pieces are sitting 280 feet below the surface, and the Aquarius Project is gearing up for a rescue mission. 
The project's home base is a 12-sided building with a huge domed roof about 150 miles from the crash site, straight down the western edge of Lake Michigan in Chicago. That building is the Adler Planetarium, a friendly neighborhood space museum with an astronomy research department in the basement. While you're in the museum, taking a walk through space and time, or watching the stars come out like magic in a theater show like the one that blew my eight-year-old mind, Adler astronomers are hard at work below, studying asteroids and exoplanets, light pollution, and star formation. Besides the astronomers, there are also people designing and building everything you see at the Adler. People planning events and running programs, janitors, theater technicians, fundraisers, web developers, volunteers, floor staff, and everybody else who makes the museum happen. People like me. I work down there too. I'm a writer. For the past year, I've been following the story of this meteorite hunt. And I've loved watching this huge group of people, most of whom are not scientists, come together and figure stuff out. It's a really big project now, but when I first heard about it, it was barely more than an idea. One person couldn't get out of his head. Another crazy Chris Bresky idea. <laughs> Which I get a lot. That's Chris Bresky. He's, well, he's a lot of things. He's the guy running our meteorite hunt. But like most of the people working on the Aquarius Project, Chris is not a scientist. His first job at the Adler was an acting gig. He played a character called Jesse in a planetarium show called Destination Solar System back in 2014, when the show first opened. With Destination Solar System, you get to do what no one has ever done. Fly around the solar system in under an hour. That's Chris in a promotional video, in costume. It's like a shiny Art Deco Starfleet uniform. Jesse is like playing no other part I've ever played because Jesse is a character full of wonder and excitement. It's Jesse's first day on the job as a space tour guide, and nothing, not first day jitters, not a potentially catastrophic collision with a chunk of ice, not even the snarky shipboard computer can slow Jesse down. Chris wasn't the only person to play Jesse. If you've seen Destination Solar System, which is still one of the most popular shows at the Adler, you may have noticed that Jesse is played by a rotating cast of men and women, with a handful of Jessies on the roster at any given time. But I did recognize Chris most easily because of his dippity-doo hairdo he had at the time. That's Natalie Rader. She works with Chris. Yeah, he looks like a, like a boy wonder from... Um, like the Jetsons. He has this cowlick at the front of his head and he used to spin it around into almost like the top of a, of a soft serve cone. I think he was really playing into the part of Jesse. All right, pause, pause. <laughs> Four years later, Chris has lost the haircut and gained a full-time position with teen programs. But that wonder and excitement he talked about, Ooh, yeah. ah, audience. Ah. that's in his bones. Chris is like Jesse grown up. That's Kelly Borden. She's the director of teen programs, Chris's boss. And she's right. Chris used to play a science tour guide, but he actually is one now. The audience is a bit tougher, though. And so is the science. There's a meteorite on display at the Adler. He's just very tenacious, and he's very... The Park Forest Meteorite. Chris is one of the most intent listeners I've ever met in my entire life. 
that Chris loves to show the high school kids he works with. He's, he's very funny and he's uh, very affable. He pushes the envelope, but in the best way possible. In 2003, the Park Forest meteorite crashed through the roof of a suburban Chicago home at 200 miles per hour, tore through the kitchen ceiling and the kitchen floor, and landed in a pile of laundry in the basement. Whenever I show that meteorite to anybody, adults or students, they they immediately turn their body to that place. Their mind is going there, and they're imagining space coming to their own neighborhood. It's hard for even the most jaded teenager to walk away from that meteorite thinking space is some cold, distant, foreign place. It's right here, at home. It's under your socks. Chris is always on the lookout for projects that will bring teenagers up to his level of continuous excitement. And scrolling through his work emails one foggy February Monday, he found the best one yet. Two Adler astronomers were emailing back and forth about a meteor that had crashed into Lake Michigan early that morning. And one of them said, hey, maybe we could send a remote-controlled robot, an ROV, down there and grab it. These astronomy email chains are pretty boring normally. I pretty much delete them automatically. I hadn't even thought about that. It still normally happens even after the fact now. I'll usually just delete them. <laughs> but, but then I couldn't stop reading. It was the closeness of the crash that reeled him in. It felt personal, almost startling, like an unexpected knock at the front door. And here it was, right in Chris's inbox a chance to take these kids on an underwater meteorite hunt with robots in their own lake. Of course, actually retrieving a meteorite fragment was a super long shot because as Chris would soon discover, nobody looks for meteorites underwater. Scientists who study meteorites generally want to spend their time studying them, not looking for them. They'd much rather just buy one from an enterprising meteorite hunter or unlucky suburban homeowner. But if they have to find a meteorite themselves, they'd probably go to a crash site in Antarctica, or like a really big desert. Somewhere the ground is a uniform color and texture, and there are no buildings or people around to obstruct their view. It may be inconvenient to travel to a place like that, but once you get there, the meteorite is very easy to find. You just look for the dark spot in the sand or the ice and then you walk over, pick it up. A few hundred feet underwater, it's a totally different story. You can't see or breathe down there for starters. Also, without a high resolution map of the lake bottom under the crash site, and good luck finding one of those, you won't know what else you're gonna find at the bottom. Sand, wildlife, other rocks that look a lot like your meteorite, that's a lot of technical hurdles to overcome for someone who just wants to get the thing back to the lab. So nobody bothers with underwater meteorites. Not unless they crash through a frozen and shallow lake and leave a big hole in the ice like a neon sign pointing directly at the meteorite. That happened to a piece of the Chelyabinsk meteor back in 2013. But nobody has ever done what the Aquarius Project is trying to do. Stake out a crash site in deep water, and bring back as many meteorites as they can. That means there's no roadmap. 
the team has to figure it out as they go. If they can pull it off, it'll be a pretty big deal. It doesn't matter if he doesn't know the science content because he can pick it up. That's Kelly again, Chris's boss. If anyone can pull this off, it's, it's Chris Bresky. The astronomer who started that email chain about the meteor, the one who introduced the idea of a meteorite hunt to his colleagues, including Chris, had actually seen the meteor burning up in the atmosphere in the wee hours of the morning. I sent an email to all my, uh, all my colleagues at Adler, and I said, I was up, did anyone see this? Now he's the associate director of Northwestern University's Center for Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics. He studies black holes, but if anything cool is happening in space, he can explain it to you in a way that will make you feel smart for having asked about it. On Twitter, he goes by Science Jedi. Do you want my Jedi name? Or <laughs> uh, My name's Shane Larson. I'm a research associate professor of physics and astronomy here at Northwestern. And I'm formerly an astronomer from the Adler Planetarium. I'm a professional astronomer and an amateur astronomer, so the meteor is pretty exciting to me. An amateur astronomer is just what it sounds like. Someone who loves stargazing so much, they do it for free. Some amateur astronomers get by with a pair of binoculars or a cheap plastic telescope. And others, like Shane, build their own telescopes to get a better view of their favorite nebulas. The truth is, is on any given night, if you're out, you can see something. And more often than not, they're just little shooting stars. Just a little streak of light, just a little flash across the sky and gone. Shane wasn't outside the night of the meteor crash, but as usual, he did have one eye on the sky. I'm a bit of a night owl, partly because I'm a physics professor and I'm always writing lectures and grading papers and stuff, but it's partly because I'm an astronomer, so I like being up late at night and seeing the sky. I was sitting at my study. To my right is my writing desk, and there's a big window that looks north. With Chicago to the south, Shane's window faces Wisconsin, which is where our meteor was about to crash. At about 1.30, well, my notes say 1.37 in the morning, there was this big, bright light. It, it was casting shadows on my walls. And I turned, and I could see the meteor just framed right in my window, high on the left side, and going down low towards my right side, which is the uh, eastern part of the sky. I immediately start, you know, noting where and what I saw and writing it down so I don't forget. Shane opens to a page in his notebook with a little sketch of a meteor in the lower right corner. Holy frap, just saw a huge fireball out my window. 1.25 a.m. CST, 50 degrees up, down to about 25 degrees above the horizon, duration two to three seconds. Even for a vigilant sky watcher like Shane, it's pretty unusual to see a giant green fireball. So he took to the internet and reported his observations to the American Meteor Society, an organization that collects meteor reports from people all over the country, professionals, amateurs, and anyone else lucky enough to spot a meteor. The next morning when I got up, I went and checked, and there are like hundreds and hundreds of reports from Chicagoland and southern Wisconsin and even Indiana and Michigan, I think. And they used all of those things to triangulate where it was going, where it came from, and where it, in, in all probability, landed. That's what really started all this, was that all of us reported this, and so we could figure out what happened. <laughs> One of the perks of being both an amateur and a professional astronomer is the assurance that when you see something spectacular in the sky, everyone will be talking about it at work tomorrow. Shane's email sparked a flurry of questions. 
How far had the meteorite fragments scattered? How deep was the water there? Did anything live in that part of the lake? Could they really find a piece if they sent a robotic rover down there? Chris wanted so badly for it to be possible. He marched down the hall to astronomy and asked Shane and another astronomer named Mark Hammergren, who was the other main contributor to that email thread, what an underwater meteorite hunt would look like. They gave him a few ideas, but also told him they didn't know for sure, because nobody had tried it before. So Chris started researching in earnest. He knocked on a few doors in the neighborhood, at the Field Museum and Shedd Aquarium, spent some quality time with Google, and made a few phone calls. I spoke to Dr. Philip Heck over at the field, this meteoritics expert, and he said that he was proposing with his colleague in NASA to drag a magnet from Walmart over the lake bed to find this meteorite. It made me realize that sometimes the answers to science can be that rudimentary. Well, there's a little more to it than that. Let's back up. The lake next to the Adler, the lake where the meteor crashed, Lake Michigan, is a great lake. That's great as in big. Its surface covers more than 22,000 square miles and touches four U.S. states. To pull a sunken meteor out of a giant lake, you need some pretty specific information and tools. First, you need to know exactly where the pieces landed. That's obvious, right? You can't pick something up if you don't know where it is. But knowing where it is is just step one. The lake is hundreds of feet deep, so even if you have a detailed map of the meteor crash site, you can't just reach in and grab it with your hand. You'll need something you can drop into the water that will pick up the pieces for you. Something like a... sled? The rosebud technique. Okay, how to describe this thing. So imagine the bones of a sled, like the kind you'd ride down a snowy hill. It's a few feet wide with no seat and a bunch of useful little contraptions attached to it. A Swiss Army sled. The frame is made out of upcycled materials, like big industrial strength cutting boards and sections of PVC pipe. And the tools attached to it are things like wheels of super strong magnets, brushes that brush off the magnets, containers to collect whatever falls off the magnets, and watertight pipes with custom sensors inside. There are pros and cons to sending a sled to pick up your meteorites instead of, say, a human diver. You won't have to worry about the sled getting too cold or running out of oxygen, but you also can't trust it to avoid getting tangled up in seaweed or crashing into a really big rock. To keep your sled out of trouble, you need a way to see underwater, like a camera attached to a remote-controlled robot. You'll also need people to help you build and test these things, in the Aquarius project, most of the people doing this are too young to vote. The kids Chris works with every day, and their peers down the street, at the field and the shed. Some of these kids were interested in science or engineering or math before they walked through the front doors at the Adler. But there's no question, it's the story that drew them into the Aquarius project. A meteor crash in the neighborhood. A problem no adult has ever tried to solve. A piece of some other world, just out of reach. And before they knew it, they were learning about neutral buoyancy on a Saturday afternoon. They wanted to learn about it because they wanted that rock. Yeah, they don't quit. They don't want to quit. The teens that I have now have been coming to the Adler on their Saturdays voluntarily for over a third of the year. And they're ending soon because it's a long, it's been a long program for them and they don't want to be done. And that's remarkable. 
that this story, that this that this event could not only inspire teens who have no knowledge of space before, no knowledge of the depths of the lake or coding or any of this before, and and now are so um, enthralled by what they're a part of that they don't want the project to end. The next thing on the list of things you need to know before you start your underwater meteorite hunt is what it's like at the bottom of the lake. Or at least you'll have to make some educated guesses about the temperature, pressure, terrain, vegetation, etc. This is where a high-res map would come in super handy. If there's a chance you'll have to sift through the wreckage of a cargo ship or wrestle the meteorite from the tentacles of a jealous sea monster, you'd probably rather see it in exquisite detail before you get there. But you won't. Well, maybe if the meteor landed in a shipwreck or near a trout spawning site, but otherwise you probably won't find a high-res scan of any particular section of the lake bottom. If there's potential for buried treasure or a commercially viable source of protein, someone might have done it. But nobody wants to put in the kind of time or money it would take to scan the entire lake bottom in high resolution, just in case you want to go meteorite hunting down there. So we look into maps that have been charted in the areas, and we were able to be connected to NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And they tell us that there aren't detailed maps of this area, and that, like this area, most of Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes don't have detailed maps, which was a little confounding. In a world where we, in technology, where we feel like, oh, we know everything and everything, all information is at our fingertips, you realize how many questions are unanswered out there. Once you start asking a few of them, it opens up a completely new world of, I don't know. Oh, and you need a boat, which it turns out is not a trivial problem. But like everything else on your list, it's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's, there's not a 0% chance. I th- the idea behind the sled is that we can cover more area and that a lot of, like a large percentage of these meteorites are golf ball size, marble size, the perfect size for a wheel of really strong magnets to pick up. And that's something that a single diver deployed once, twice, three times doesn't have a greater chance to do. If we're able to go in that really high density parts of the field and drag this sled around in a, in a, you know, in a gridded fashion, it ups our chances a lot. And it's, that's one of the methods that make the astronomers and the scientists say, huh, that sounds like the right way to approach this. And it's rewarding to have teams at the helm of this getting affirmed by professionals in the science field. Of course, there's no reason teenagers or actors or anybody else should be surprised to hear that a scientist likes their idea, especially when they're in the trenches doing the work. You don't have to know everything about a puzzle to help solve it. And you don't need an advanced degree in physics or engineering to build something, test it, change it, and test it again until it works. Our picture of the universe, the planets, the void, and all those stars came together exactly like this. Lots and lots of people put it together one piece at a time. When they got stuck, they looked around until they found someone who could help. 
So who is behind the camera in those start on Earth and zoom out forever shows that still play in planetariums all over the world? I mean, it's whoever animated and directed the show, obviously, but the picture you see, the picture is not one person's attempt to make sense of where we are. It's everyone's. And the more we work together, the clearer the picture becomes. Here's Shane Larson. There are things you can do and you can discover about the world where it's just you and an experiment or you and your piece of paper and you can come up with a discovery. But big things like finding a meteorite on the bottom of the lake. But, but other big things, too, like the Large Hadron Collider and finding the Higgs boson, or LIGO and the detection of the first binary neutron star, right? Big things take lots of minds to make those big things happen because they're not easy, right? We all have this kind of romantic notion of the polymath. You know, someone like da Vinci, who was a master of everything. But the truth is, Modern science and modern discovery, precisely because we know a lot about the world already and we know exactly where the boundaries of knowledge are, requires a whole bunch of us acting together as if we're a polymath, right? You can't do it by yourself. Do you have any advice for the Aquarius Project hunters? (laughs) Uh, Don't go without me. Next time on the Aquarius Project... How do you figure out where a meteor crashed when all the pieces are underwater? A suburban police officer has crucial information. A scientist waits for him to get back from SWAT training. And meteorology doesn't have anything to do with meteors. Or does it? And later in the series, we'll talk to some of the kids designing, mixing, measuring, 3D printing, coding, building, and testing the Aquarius Project's meteorite hunting gear. The Aquarius Project is a production of the Adler Planetarium with music by Audio Network. It was written by me, Aubrey Henretti, and produced by Aaron Cahoe. Our logo was designed by Arilla Fetro. Special thanks to Chris Bresky, Shane Larson, Kelly Borden, Natalie Rader, Mike Smale, Justin Bull, and Trisha Bobita. Follow the Adler Planetarium on Twitter and Instagram at Adler Planet or on Facebook at Adler Planetarium visit our website at adlerplanetarium.org.